guts and family and our community, Lord. Um, we ask that you bless the community of Ira. Um, we ask that uh, we can walk in you. Um, we can walk in you individually and as families and as, as a community together, Lord. We're thankful for the opportunity to learn from each other. Um, Lord, we ask that you be with Ben this morning as he brings your word to us. Lord, open our hearts and our minds and help us to leave this place uh, enriched and fulfilled and encouraged in you um, in ways that we can share with our neighbors and share with our friends as we go about our week. Lord, we thank you for having a plan for us, uh, and we thank you for being our God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Tanner. First Corinthians chapter 5 is where we will be uh, this morning. Uh, if you're one of the kids, who's going to go with that uh, 80s cult classic, Kaylee and the Kids Committee? And just to avoid this, this is not what we normally do, and we won't normally do this. It's too good to have our kids in here with us. But there are some passages that uh, are not age appropriate, like 1 Corinthians 5. So sometimes when you think about what a church is and what a church is is not, and we um, start talking with other people or hear other people talking about churches, all sorts of things get thrown around and these all sorts of these different ideas about what the church is and what the church isn't get tossed around and typically the ones that end up sticking with us are the ones that are kind of be have become cliches or that are just like these easy things for us to visualize and sometimes they're helpful and sometimes they're, they're not very helpful and so we'll say things like the church is not a building which is 100% true but then in our mind, what we do with that phrase is we'll say, well, the church isn't a building, and so I can go and do church wherever I want by myself. But that's not true either. The church is a gathered people. And so this is the church's building. It's possessive, right? It's the church's ministries. That's what Wednesdays will be. That's what kids, Sunday, those are the ministries of, of the church, the gathered people of Jesus that have covenanted together. Uh, sometimes you'll hear church talked about like it's not a country club, which is very true. It's not a country club right? There's not a dress code, although we do prefer clothes. Outside of that, whatever. There's not a dress code. You don't pay your dues to be a member here. Um, however, just because we say it's not a, a country club doesn't mean that there's not expectations and things that are expected of the members of the church. That's the way Jesus talks about his bride. And so I want to do real briefly before we dive into this, 1 Corinthians 5 is, is the church discipline passage. That's why it's so controversial, and that's why it's been ignored for so long. Um, if you're preaching topically, very I've never seen a topical pastor go, we're going to do an eight-week series on church discipline. That just doesn't tend to work in those areas. And so what's ended up happening is we've neglected passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 5 or, or Matthew chapter 16 because it doesn't fit into those kinds of, of molds for preaching. And so what I want to do is I just want to lay out this, this biblical idea of how Jesus presents the church, and then we'll walk through 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because it's going to help us understand what Jesus is saying through Paul and what he's, he's not saying. And so the idea of, of the local church is extremely important in Scripture. God could have used any means to spread his glory throughout all of creation, and he chose people like you and I churches 
that physically are gathering together wherever we're at, spread across the right, right, right now, spread across the nation. There's all sorts of people gathering together as believers in these churches, these gathered groups of people. But we know that we're not the complete picture of what the, the universal church is. Right, the universal church would be every believer who's ever lived or ever will live, past, present, and, and future. That's not what we are. Our, our role as a church really is to be an embassy or an outpost for the kingdom of God. So when Jesus dies on the cross, he inaugurates, sets up this kingdom where he is the king that's promised from the line of David. He rules forever, and he is ruling right now, currently and present. But that kingdom of God is invisible at the moment. It will become visible when Jesus comes back again, and it will fully be inaugurated completely and totally, and everybody who will be in the kingdom will be in the kingdom, and those who won't will be out of the kingdom. But at this moment, the way the world sees the kingdom of God is through these gathered embassies, these gathered outposts, these churches that Jesus has set up, where we try to say, like, we, we, we're Americans if we're here, right? We, we, and we're Texans, more important than Americans, right? But our primary nationality is we're in the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom. And so we live in the midst of Texans. We live in the midst of Americans. We live in the midst of wherever as people who have uh, a citizenship in a different kingdom. Now, others can join us in that. That's the whole point of, of, one of the whole points of the church is to bring others along with us and show them the benefit of this kingdom of God. But we're scattered. We're set apart in all of these little places all around. That, that's what God has set the local church up to be. It's why it's so important that he hasn't forgot about us in Ira, that he's with us gathered together with us. You can see in Revelation at the very beginning when Jesus is walking through uh, the, the uh, um, lanterns and they represent these churches, it's important for us to recognize that Jesus tells us he's in the midst of them. He's walking in them. He's not abandoned them. He's right there. So that's kind of this grand idea of what the church is supposed to be, these embassies, these little outposts, which makes you and I ambassadors, people who represent a kingdom but we live in a kingdom that we don't belong to fully. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and then we'll pray and, and walk through this. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are arrogant. You should be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this. Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And uh, as one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be new unleavened batch, and indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven, 
or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I do not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person, for what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside. God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Father, as we walk through a passage that is hard, and it's hard for a lot of ways. God, the sin that's described is egregious. And it goes against so much of what our culture says in the response of what the church is supposed to do. And so I pray, God, as we walk through this passage, you would let us walk through it humbly. You would help us to walk through it in love. You would help us to walk through it with grace and with mercy that you have lavished upon us. And that you would help us to walk through it with truth and sincerity. God, your local church that you have given is important. I pray that this passage would remind us of that and help us to grow in you. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Convict us where we need conviction. Help us to repent and to turn to you more. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to start in chapter 5, and we're going to go verse 1 through 5. It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, hand the one over to Satan for destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. There's a whole lot to unpack in that. So let's start. Uh, Paul starts beginning with, right, he's, he's said this whole letter, this whole book of Corinth, uh, this letter to the Corinthians, right? It's called 1 Corinthians, but we learn halfway through here it should be 2 Corinthians because there was a letter that was written somewhere before, but it's lost to us. It's not in the canon. It wasn't the inerrant and fallible word of God. So we have this letter that Paul has written in response to some things that they've been talking about. And Paul has started off by saying the main issue at the church of Corinth is they do not have unity. They've not been unified in their thinking and in their belief. They have all these teachers that they're arguing over. There's pride, there's arrogance, there's worldly wisdom, all of these things that are playing into this church that that Paul also calls believers and brothers and sisters. He uses an endearing fatherly term for this people that you're like, oh, man. And so now Paul gets to a very specific point and a very specific sin that's taking place in the church. He says there's sexual immorality among you, and it's the kind that the Gentiles don't even partake in, which is interesting. Because with where Corinth is at, most likely the church was made up of Gentiles. 
There were a few Jewish people there, but most of the church ethnically would have been Gentiles. And so what Paul is subtly saying is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your ethnicity has changed. You're, you're not Gentile, you're not Jewish, you're a Christian now. That's who you belong to is the Lord. Gentiles are outside. You're a believer, now you're inside. And so he says sexual immorality, the word for sexual immorality is important. It's pornea. We get pornography from this word. And it's a very broad meaning word. It's not a specific sin that Paul is saying when he says sexual immorality. He's talking about all various kinds of sexual immorality. It's a very broad category. That's important because in a few chapters he's going to talk about this again. And so he says there's this one specific sin that's sexually immoral that's taking place in your church, and then he names the sin. He says a man is sleeping with his father's wife. This is incest is what Paul's talking about. Now, most likely it's not his biological mother because Paul would have then just said a man is sleeping with his mother. It's probably a stepmom, which means his dad had either divorced or his mom had died and he had remarried. And it's also interesting when we read through this that she is never criticized in all of it. And at the very end of it, Paul says we're not to judge the outsiders. We're supposed to judge those inside the church, which means she probably was not a believer. That you have this prominent man within the church who's sleeping with his stepmom. She is an unbeliever. He is a believer. And there's a lot of things wrapped up with him. And so Paul says, you're arrogant about this. What a weird thing to boast in. I can't, like, I'm try, I tried all week. I was like, how would a church boast in having this? Nobody's going to put up a sign at the front of their church that's like, incest is welcome here. Come on in. That's a weird way to try to campaign to grow your church. Now, instead, I think what was happening reading through the text and reading some of the scholars who were digging into this stuff is they were boasting in, listen, there's, there's liberty within uh, the gospel. There's no legalism here. You come and you can do what you want to do and you can be who you want to be here. And Paul says, what arrogance. Now, he doesn't say you should be angry, which I think is probably how I would respond. He says you should be filled with grief. Grief is such an interesting word in response to this. Grief insinuates that you deeply love this man, that you care a lot about him, and that he's done something to cause you to grieve. And so he says, remove from your congregation the one who did this. Paul says this kind of phrase where even though I'm, I'm absent in the body, I'm present with you in spirit. And as one who is present, I've pronounced judgment. I've made my decision. Uh, and so when you assemble, when you gather back together as a whole church, when you come back together, you need to bring this issue to the forefront. And this needs to be dealt with. And this needs to be settled. It can't be swept under the rug and pretend like nobody knows what's going on. Everybody knows what's going on with this. He says, I'm with you in spirit, right? He's not going to physically be there, but he's giving them, this is what needs to happen. This is what the Lord is saying. Because what Paul is, is, is really hitting at is he's like, the gospel does not allow for this. The gospel is about repentance, that growth, 
Like we all come in as, as sinners. We all have this sinful nature that mars us. And we all that sinful nature fleshes itself out in a variety of different ways within us all. And to a degree, we all come into the church gathered together, bearing sins, bearing burdens, bearing all sorts of different things together that we need to repent of, that we need to rid ourselves of. But this man is doing something specific that Paul's like, this isn't just a believer who's dabbling in sin. This is a, an unbeliever parading himself around as a believer. You need to get him out of the congregation. He doesn't belong there. But what he says is that you don't do this to be mean. There's no hint of anger with Paul. In fact, did you catch what Paul said? He says you hand him over to Satan for destruction for the flesh, which, which throws people off a little bit because we have this idea that God and Satan are equals. And there's this cosmic battle where they're fighting and, and maybe God will, will win one day. That is not the case whatsoever. Satan is a creation. He is weak compared to God. He has no full power, no full authority. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent like God is. He's weak. I've gotten into a lot of arguments with people because they'll go, I think Satan's messing with me. I'm like, I don't think you're important enough for Satan to waste his time on you. Maybe some demon, but not Satan. Ephesians, Paul says that Satan's the, the ruler of the world is, is the title that he's given, which just means he's the ruler of the things that are, are outside of his control. Hell was created for Satan and the demons. It's not where he rules. It's his punishment. That's where all unbelievers, whether that be Satan and demons or unbelieving human beings, will end. It's not like the place in the comics where that's his kingdom and then God's kingdom's heaven. No, 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 no. God's kingdom is everywhere. And so when it says you turn him over to Satan for destruction of the flesh, Paul, Paul can't be saying death. He's not saying so that this man will die. Because in the next breath he says so that he might be saved. What he's saying is the way that he's living has to change. At best, he's a prodigal son running away from the Lord. And at worst, he's an unbeliever parading around as a believer who's doomed and destined for hell. And so the whole goal of this discipline that Paul is calling for the church to do is not because they're angry, is not because they're upset, it's not to make a point, it's because they love this man and they should be grieving over his sin. That sin is serious. And did you also catch who Paul tells to do this? He does not say get the personnel committee together and let them handle it. He doesn't even say get the deacons together or get the pastor together. He says when the whole church assembles. That's why we believe in congregationalism. That's why we say our church body as a whole makes the decisions. We have committees, we have all those things that kind of lead out in those areas, but at the end of the day, it's the church gathered together that makes the decisions. That's why we do our member meetings. It's the church as a whole that does this. 
Uh, this isn't the only place in the Bible that talks about church discipline. In, in Matthew uh, chapter 18, uh, starting in verse 15, is the other famous passage about church discipline. I want to read it quickly because it helps us paint this whole picture before we, we move on. This is Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen to you, Take one or two others with you, so that by your testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. And if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. And if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let it to be him like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly, truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on the earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on the earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you agree, uh, two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you. For by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there with them. I always like to read verse 20 because that passage gets thrown around a lot. Wherever two or three are gathered, wherever two or three are gathered, that's a lot of church discipline that's taking place. They'll put those at Hobby Lobby signs, and it just makes me laugh every time. I was like, I don't think that verse means what you think it means. Now, certainly there's importance there, and certainly where two or three are gathered is an important thing. But the Jewish law was you needed two or three witnesses. That's why you have three women that go to the tomb of Christ. And so what Jesus is laying out there is the pattern of what church discipline is supposed to look like. Initially, you call it church discipline, but it should just be discipleship that's taking place within the church. You see us in another brother, you go, you talk to him, they agree, they repent, you move on, praise the Lord. But then if they don't, you take two or three with you. And if they don't listen to you, you go to the church. If they don't listen to the church, then you catch what happens. They should be like a Gentile or a tax collector. You remove them. So what's taking place in Corinthians is they're already at stage three. And we're not told that anybody went and talked to the man. And maybe it's that his sin is so egregious that everybody understands this is something that he has to stop and he can't be doing. And the way that the word is written that he's sleeping with his, mother's, uh, with his father's wife means it's a continual sin. It's not past. It's present and continually taking place. And so maybe Paul is saying, because that sin, we're going to jump to number three. Maybe there were people who went to him beforehand that we're not aware of. But that's the pattern of church, pattern of church discipline. And it's meant to be keeping the church pure, keeping the church holy. Loving one another, even in the hard times. Because I imagine that conversation was not a comfortable one. But how unloving is it to let a brother whom you know is in blatant and obvious sin that is hindering his life and hindering the life of the church continue in it? We can call it all sorts of things, but you cannot call it love. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Your boasting is not good, is how Paul starts this, this part. Right? 
initially, right, there's this, this gospel power, this, this power in the gospel that if we will love each other enough to do what the Bible says to do, that, that some people might be led to salvation. That's what he's saying in the first part. And now he's saying that this gospel love should create in us this sincerity and this truth, and that cannot exist with blatant sins like incest. He says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Miss Laramore at Panhandle Elementary School would say it like this. One rotten apple spoils the whole batch. She had other phrases that were great. I'll be on you like a duck on a June bug was my favorite. One rotten apple spoils the whole batch. See, what Paul is doing is he's drawing these people back to the, one of the great events of the Old Testament that takes place. He's drawing their minds and he's drawing their hearts back to Passover with Moses, to the Exodus. He's doing this intentionally. We'll see they were not doing some things with the Lord's Supper correctly. And so he's going to address that later, but he brings it up up here. If you know the story, you have the, the ten plagues that are taking place, that Moses and Aaron are approaching Pharaoh and say, well, if you don't let our people go, we're going to do these things. And Pharaoh would say no, and, and, and half the time Pharaoh hardened his heart, and half the time God hardens his heart, which teaches us a little bit of the sovereignty and free will of man and God. And so finally, uh, they, they continue with all of these plagues. One of the neat things with the plagues is each of the plagues correlates with an Egyptian deity. And so it's not just random things that, that God is sending to these people. It's God controlling their gods. Crazy. And so finally, for the, the ninth in, or the tenth and the, the final plague, it's the death of the firstborn son. And so what God does is he tells the Israelites all of these things that they need to do. Go, go sacrifice a lamb, and you're going to eat this meat, and you're going to paint the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And everybody who has the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, God will pass over. That's where the name comes from. He's going to pass over those houses, and those who are not covered by the blood of the lamb are in jeopardy of death. Like, it's the gospel in the Old Testament as clear as it possibly could be. And a part of what they were supposed to do that night is they were supposed to have on their workout gear. He says, have your robes tied up, ready to go. Put your sandals in four-wheel drive. Like, we're going to be running. You're going to need to be moving. And because of the hurry and because of the pace and because of things like this that God knew were coming, he says, when you're cooking, put it in the microwave. Don't put leaven in the bread and let it rise. Just make it as fast as you can because you're going to be running, and you're going to need it to be portable. And so throughout the Old Testament, this idea of leavened and unleavened bread kind of takes place. You see in the Passover every year, there's unleavened bread that they eat. You see in the festival of unleavened bread that they would celebrate. It reminded them of these ideas. So for the Jewish people, leaven represents evil, wickedness. And unleavened represents purity. I'm not a baker. I don't claim to be a baker. I've eaten many things that have been baked, but I have not baked successfully probably ever. But I know that if you put a little leaven, if you put a little yeast in bread, it doesn't stay in one little spot. That eventually it spreads to the whole loaf. That's what Paul is saying. As he's saying, this man who's doing this sexual immorality, this thing that's not even tolerated amongst the Gentiles, you're proud of what he's doing. 
You're saying things like we love the, uh, love the sinner, we hate the sin, but you're not doing anything to help him to actually grow past that sin. You're saying things like churches are meant to be a hospital for sinners, not a hotel for saints, but you're not doing anything to help that man actually grow in Jesus Christ. You're just throwing cliches and being proud of who you're accepting into your congregation. And Paul's saying, a little leaven leavens the whole batch. And that's not the first time the Bible uses that phrase. It is used a bunch. Talking about the Pharisees. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees is what Jesus tells the people. And so Paul says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be the unleavened batch as indeed you are. There's this hard to grasp theological idea presented to us in scripture that you and I if we're believers in Jesus Christ on the one hand we still have our sinful nature on this side of heaven and we always will until the Lord takes us home yet on the other side we are saints in the Lord not because we're perfect but because we've been covered by the blood of the lamb and so at the same time we are sinners and we are saints and it doesn't always mix well, and it fleshes itself out in odd kind of ways oftentimes. But what the Bible is telling us is those are two things that we hold together, that we have this sinful nature, that we're trying to grow and mature in the Lord, while at the same time we have this sainthood that God has given to us if we're believers in Jesus Christ, and we live in the fact that our ultimate destiny is with the Lord because of our sainthood, not in hell away because of our sinful nature. So Paul draws them back. He's like, this is who you are. You're unleavened bread if you've been saved by God. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Everyone covered in the blood of the lamb, the punishment of God passes over. Still true. That those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who repent of their sins and turn to Christ in faith, the blood of Jesus on the cross atones for your and my sins. The lamb has already been sacrificed. And Christ the lamb is a good enough lamb that we don't have to do this every single year like the Israelites did. It's a once for all sacrifice. And so Paul says, therefore, let us observe the feast. That should be what Baptists have put on the walls in the fellowship hall. Let us observe the feast. I thought that was a potluck joke, my bad. <laughs> There's a lot of things Paul could be referring to here. He says, let us observe the feast. Not with the old leaven, with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He, he, he lays out exactly what he's, he's talking about. He's saying this, this leaven is malice and evil. Malice is kind of the evil nature, and then the evil is what comes from that, that evil nature. He's saying that's the leaven that has to get rid of and get out, because the unleavenedness is sincerity and truth. It's authenticity. It's being real in the gospel. It's saying this is the truth. This is what we stand on and genuinely meaning it. For this church at Corinth, it means that they genuinely do love the man who is committing this sin. And they desperately, desperately, desperately want to see him repent and turn to Jesus in faith. But if he's not willing to do that, they're not going to coddle his sin. There's a sincerity there and there's a truth. 
And so at the minimum, what Paul is talking about is the Lord's Supper when he says observe the feast. But more likely, he's probably talking about all of the meals that they would share together. See, in the early church, they didn't have cars. There was no government programs to care for the orphans and the widows, those who were in need. So oftentimes what the local churches would do was they would just bring food and they would eat together daily. That's why you see in Acts, daily their number was growing because gospel is being proclaimed every day. That's why you see in Acts, deacons form because there's distribution of food to the widows that was not fairly done. And so deacons formed to help facilitate that ministry that was taking place every day. So, so very likely, at the minimum, they're talking about the uh, Lord's Supper, but, but more likely they're talking about just everyday acceptance of one another. And so look what Paul says in verse 9. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean immoral people of the world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is of it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside. God judges outsiders. Remove the person from among you. So Paul writes a letter, right? They've been corresponding. They've been talking. We know they've had reports. Paul spent 18 months with these people. He does love these people, even though they do really weird things, even though they make a lot of mistakes and they take the word of God and twist it in all sorts of ways. Paul genuinely has love and affection for these people. But he's like, you didn't listen to what I actually said. I said don't associate with sexually immoral people. Remember, that word is a broad term that means any kind of sexual immorality. He's not just talking about the incest he specifically named earlier. It's any type of sexual immorality. He says do not associate with those people. Then he has to clarify. I didn't mean like outside. Because you can't get away. We understand that really well. With social media and, and whatever streaming network comes up, you cannot get away from sexual immorality. It is everywhere, and it is paraded in front of us in such of a way that it's accepted by many people just because it's popular. And, and let's not act like this is a new thing. I have some records from the 40s, 50s, and 60s that prove that sexual morality has been around for a long time. But he says, it's, it's not just that. There's greedy, there's swindlers, there's idolaters. If you're going to truly get away from all of those people, you'd have to leave the world. So NASA hadn't been formed yet. The Cold War hadn't taken place to get somebody to the moon so that they could leave the world. So they're just stuck there. Poor joke, my bad. No, what Paul is saying is that's not how this works. He said what I... Actually, I wrote not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, who claims to be a Christian, who claims to have covenanted together with your body of believers, somebody that you look next to and go, that's a brother or a sister in Christ, and they're claiming to do that, and in the next breath, they're sexually immoral, or they're greedy, or they're an idolater, or they're uh, verbally abusive, or a drunkard, or a swindler. There's something interesting Paul does with that list. He's describing the people. They're not adjectives. It's not the one who lies. It's the liar. 
It's not the one who steals. It's the swindler. He's associating with that person. They're doing those things so much that this is their identity. This is what they're known for. All of those sins are listed in Leviticus. And the punishment for all of those sins in Leviticus is death. If you were sexually immoral in Leviticus, in Israel, the punishment was death. If you're greedy and it's proven, the punishment's death. If there's idolaters, it's death. If you're verbally abused, if you're a drunkard, if you're a swindler, if you're stealing things, the, the punishment for all of that in Leviticus is death. It's what Paul is saying is from the beginning. Remember Exodus? Remember the Passover lamb when God forms this nation, right? It's after that on Mount uh, Sinai that God gives the law, that he gives Leviticus and Deuteronomy to the people so that they can know how to live holy and pure lives before God, that God's people have always had a standard that this is who we are if we're going to be fellowshipping together and be God's people. And in the Old Testament was if you do those things, you're killed. That's how we stay pure. That's how we stay holy to God. But in the New Testament, Paul doesn't say, kill them. He says, do not even eat with such a person. Again, at the minimum, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. But more realistically, he's, when you ate a meal with somebody in this culture, you were, you were supporting them. You were uh, approving their life. You were approving them as people. And so if you were seen eating with somebody else, you were supporting them. This is why Peter, the apostle Peter, the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth who did so many bad things and so many good things after Jesus in Acts when he gets caught eating with the Gentiles. Do you remember what he does? He gets scared. He panics because he knows that means he's approving of his association with Gentiles, and so he flees and he leaves. And you know who calls him out for it? Paul. Do not even eat with such a person. Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge the outsider? Meaning those outside of the church. Then he says, don't you judge those who are inside. God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. So, so, so Paul does this still. It's an ABAB pattern. So what business is it of mine to judge? It's not answered until the second verse, right? God judges outsiders. Don't you judge those who are inside. Remove the evil person from among you. In, in, in Matthew chapter 7, there's a passage that often gets quoted within our churches but is misunderstood because we don't do passages like, like 1 Corinthians 5. This is Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or why do you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your eye, then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. We just stop at the very first part that says don't judge. We say, all right, don't judge. So the problem is, if you tell somebody, don't judge, that's you issuing a judgment against them. So you violated what you just said. You can't say, don't judge, without being judgmental. My response is always, don't judge me for judging you. <laughs> now, we can be judgmental to a fault. 
what Jesus is getting at in, in, in Matthew chapter 7 is that there's a pride, there's an arrogance that can come with people, especially those who call themselves believers. If we're not careful, we end up looking like Pharisees and we view ourselves morally superior to other people. And so we look down on other people and we cast judgment from what we view as a, a place above them looking down on them. That is condemned in Scripture. That's the judgment that Jesus is saying. No, 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 no. They may have a splinter in their eye, but you have a two-by-four sticking out of yours. Get the log out of your eye. Repent. Turn to Jesus in the gospel. And then get the splinter out of the other eye. He doesn't say, so just don't worry about it. He says, get the log out, and then you can go get the splinter. So what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? God judges the outsiders. This is why we think the, the, the father's wife that the man is sleeping with is probably not a believer. Because Paul doesn't issue any judgment towards her. Instead, Paul says, judge those inside. Not from a place of superiority, not from a place of feeling like you're better than somebody else, but from a place of that's a brother and sister in Christ. And what they most need from you is to issue a judgment that's done in sincerity, that's done in truth, and that's done in love that might end up causing them to repent and to believe in Jesus. Because if they will listen to your judgment, then the judgment that Christ gives them when they die will be far better for them. He says, remove the evil person from among you. There's an interesting thing. Paul, Paul does a lot here, and there's, I know there's a lot to unpack in this, this one passage. But can I just point a few things out to you? Paul gets more upset in this passage about how the church responded to the man's sin than the man's sin. And his sin is egregious, and it's terrible. And there are laws in the Old Testament that say this should not be uh, something that is supported. This should be something that be kicked out. But you don't see Paul just berating that men for, man for his sin. Instead, what you see Paul saying is, you're as a church not discipling that brother the way that you're supposed to be. He keeps telling them, the little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's your job to get rid of the stuff that's not leavened. Remove the person from among you. And we see Paul lists other sins at the end of it. So it's not just incest, right? It's not like there's somebody doing incest, we'll, we'll remove them at the next member meeting. There's other sins that Paul lists on here, meaning if there's somebody who's blatantly living in unrepentant sin, it's our job if we're believers in Jesus Christ and we're members of this church and we've covenanted with one another to hold those things together because in reality, it is a local church and we're just in Ira, but we represent the kingdom of God that we're ambassadors that God has placed here, that he's put us in these little outposts. And though it's not comfortable and though it's not friendly, and oftentimes those things look mean and cold, what we're doing is we're saying the gospel calls us to something far more than what our desires might be. That it's far better for us than those things. That Jesus Christ lived the life I was supposed to live, that he died the death that I deserved, that I repent of my sin, my rebellion against God's kingdom. And I come under the reign of God's kingdom, and I won't do it perfectly, and you won't do it perfectly. And that's why we covenant together to help one another grow in Jesus and mature in Christ. 
you will not find in the Bible anyone who is a lone ranger Christian growing in Jesus. It doesn't exist. Instead, what you see are people who are sinners and saints at the same time, gathering together and trying to figure life out in a way that's sincere and true. And so we will make a lot of mistakes when we do this. And I'm certain that hurt feelings will happen too. And so we need to be quick to repent. We need to be humble in our approach. And I'm not saying we go look at everybody's house and just start kicking people out. But what I'm saying is this is in the Bible. And it's a passage we need to take serious. The purpose of discipline that that God gives us here is not to revenge somebody or to release anger. It's because we love that person deeply. This morning, uh, I was with all three kids, and we were sitting in the back, and Addie and Bryn were playing, and if you know our kids, this makes a lot of sense. Bryn decided that her team was team bad, and that Addie's was team good, (laughs) and Bryn picked it. She wasn't like assigned team bad. She's like, no, I want to be team bad. This is who I am, and so Addie was like, if you keep being bad, then Jesus isn't going to come into your heart, because he doesn't come into the heart of bad people. He comes into the heart of good people, and so I was like, hold on. And we walked through this. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not get your life together. Quit sleeping with your father's wife. Quit stealing. Quit verbally abusing people. Quit being an idolater. Quit being greedy. Quit being a drunkard or getting drunk all the time. Quit doing all of these sexual immorality and then Jesus will save you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is... Jesus finds you right where you're at dealing with all of the stuff that you're at, no matter what kind of sin it is. You're not a better sinner than God is a Savior. He finds you where you are. He doesn't save good people. He saves bad people, people who need Jesus. It's not about being good and being bad. It's about our life going from death to life. It's not about us looking at people and being angry because they're not living the way that we want them to live. It's about us loving one another enough to have the hard conversations with one another that's often necessary. It's about us looking around and saying, I know that we will never be completely and totally holy on this side of heaven, but if this is what God calls us to do, then we had better strive towards that goal as best as we possibly can. Because not doing anything about sin is misleading. It misleads the world to think that we stand for things we don't stand for. And it misleads those within the church to think that the gospel isn't power enough, powerful enough to fix their sin. I'm convinced that there's lots of people, especially within the Bible Belt, who believe they are believers in Jesus Christ, but at the end of the day are not. They like what Jesus brings peace and hope and comfort but to have Jesus as a savior means you have to have Jesus as Lord means you have to have Jesus as king he's not savior and not king of your life he's both or he's neither what this means is we must love each other enough to set standards and then to call each other to live up to those standards Our temptation is it is so easy to focus on the sins of those outside of the church. The rich men north of Richmond. The 
Democrats, whoever it is that we want to focus on that's away from us, the LGBTQ uh, people, whatever those sins are that are distant from us, it's so easy for us to focus on those things, say those people have to get their life right, how dare they live that way, when the Bible tells us that's not our goal. We want them to repent, we want them to come to Christ, but our goal if we're believers in Jesus is first and foremost to grow in Christ ourselves. To judge those inside. To present ourselves blameless to, to the Lord. It means that we love each other enough to disciple one another. We love each other enough to be involved in one another's lives in ways that are kind of uncomfortable sometimes. That it's far more than just coming Sunday morning or coming Wednesday night. That we've covenanted with one another. I hear this said often, and I'll, I'll end with this. There's this idea that you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, which is true. But if you've covenanted with your brothers and sisters, you certainly will not be a healthy Christian if you're not at church. That's like saying you don't have to live in the same house with your spouse to be married. You don't have to talk to your spouse to be married. You, you don't technically. You can have that form. You can have all of those things and make that be true, but that marriage will not be healthy. The goal for us is to grow in the Lord. The goal for us is to grow in the gospel. The goal for us is to say, let's do this. Let's live sincerely. Let's live in truth. And let's be a gospel light in Ira. Not because we're perfect. Not because we have it all together. Because you and I, if we're believers in Jesus, are sinners and saints at the exact same time. And we can display that to a world who desperately needs some hope. Some peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. God, I'm thankful for 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a passage that is hard, but God, a passage that is your word and that is good. God, I pray that this would be a passage that would spur us on to love you more and to love each other's more, passage that would spur us to care about one another, a passage that would spur us on to be the gathered people that you've called us to be, these outposts for the gospel. God, I pray that it wouldn't be a text that would just bring conviction on us or, or, or bring uh, emotions and, and fears, but rather, God, it would be a text that would drive us to the cross. You tell us that that's where the power is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of you God so I pray as we respond to the sermon by singing that our hearts would be aligned with your gospel and that you would grow us in you it's in your name we pray amen